Hi, this is Amy. Before we start our episode today, I have two exciting announcements. First, in December, we will be wrapping up season one of Breaking Down Patriarchy, and I want to thank all of you listeners for your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing our project with others. Thank you for writing positive reviews on Apple Podcasts. That really does help people find our project. We're reaching thousands of people every week, and I'm really overwhelmed with gratitude for everything I've learned in this process and for the comments that people are sharing with me about how much they're learning and how these books and these discussions are changing their lives for the better. Thank you so much. Second, we are already planning season two of Breaking Down Patriarchy, and we need your help. Instead of centering our episodes on essential texts next season, we're going to highlight people's stories. So if you would like a chance to be featured on the podcast, please email us at breakingdownpatriarchy at gmail.com, and we'll get you more information about how to apply. These will be talks that are similar to what you might hear on your favorite NPR show like The Moth or This American Life or a TED Talk. And we want as many diverse views as possible. So spread this message far and wide. We want people of all races and genders and socioeconomic situations, etc. So please add your voice to the conversation. And again, email us at breakingdownpatriarchy at gmail.com for more information about how to apply to be on the show. Thank you and enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Allabest. Today we will be discussing The Sacred Hoop, Recovering the Feminine in American Indian Traditions by Paula Gunn Allen, written in 1986. My reading partner for today is the amazing Sherry Crawford, whom listeners will remember from way back at the very beginning of our podcast project from our episodes on Gerda Lerner's The Creation of Patriarchy. So welcome back, Sherry. Thank you so much for being here again. We're so excited to have you. Amy, thank you so much for inviting me back. It's been a privilege. I'm really excited about this because we talked a little bit in our beginning episodes when you were sharing your biography about your family background. And I I was thinking about that and what this book, what this book means to me, but what it might mean for you. And I'm hoping you'll talk about that a little bit. But I if you'll indulge me, I had this this kind of image come to my mind. I was talking recently with a friend about what it feels like to discover that women had come before us and had made huge intellectual and psychological contributions that we had not even known about and therefore weren't able to benefit from in our lives. And she said, um, she said, you know, it's like that part in the movie Moana where Moana had been drawn to the sea for her whole life without knowing why, but she feels like the sea is part of her destiny and it's part of her power, but she just feels so alone and like something's wrong with her. And she said, discovering, you know, women's texts from earlier feels like when Moana goes into that cave and she sees the ships of her ancestors and she's like, what? Like, why didn't anyone tell me that we are literally descended from voyagers? And it means everything to her to know that her own ancestors were drawn to the sea as well and that she had a legacy of, of people 
who were tied to the ocean. And I think that analogy is so powerful for all women as we become educated about our intellectual foremothers. But I thought of you specifically, Sherry, because in those first episodes, you shared that the side of your family that you thought was was quote unquote Spanish, right? Was actually both Spanish and Native American. And that had a huge emotional impact on you. And this book right. shares how so many Native American cultures before European colonization were were matrifocal and matrilineal cultures that were much more egalitarian than the European cultures that oppressed them. And so for me, like this, it's kind of poetic and emotional to call all of these women on the pod- podcast my foremothers because they are, you know, spiritual foremothers and intellectual foremothers. Mm-hmm. But for you, they're your literal genetic ancestors in this book. I I believe because Paula Gunn Allen was a part of the Laguna Pueblo nation and the, those that nation's featured in the book. So I just, I kept thinking of you and thinking of Moana singing, we are descended from voyagers and thinking of you <laughs> dis- discovering your foremothers. I, would you be willing to talk a little bit about that? Um, Absolutely. But also it, it just comes up in each of the chapters that I'm prepared to discuss today. Just a little bit of me is in every single one of them and seeing a glimpse I mean, so my brother did the 23andMe test and learned that we're actually 19% Native American, which is a surprisingly high percentage considering we didn't Mm. really know that was part of our heritage at all. And then it was in my BYU-Idaho class where I learned that the Spanish conquered the area of Mexico that is now called New Mexico. And these are my people. That is where I came from. And so I learned at that time that I am Pueblo. (laughs) And to be like in college, just learning that you're Pueblo and learning from a class, like not learning from my people, like not my mother, grandmother, great mother. Uh, Grandmother was hard. My great grandmother always Mm -hmm. used to say, we are Spanish people. And she said it with pride. And so there is a part of me that thinks that during the colonization, there, there was shame associated with Mm. being Pueblo. And Mm. this book is helping me um, recognize that, but then also deconstruct it and see this not as a shameful part of my heritage, but just beautiful. So empowering. That is beautiful, Sherry. Yeah, it just feels like I'm discovering something new about myself, especially like it feels empowering to know that these beautiful traditions and this beautiful heritage is a part of my DNA. Like literally it is in me and I have a ton to learn. I am not an expert. I am here just opening these pages and learning from these native women who have done the work. And I just have so much to learn. Oh, I'm so, I've learned so much too. And I just feel really honored to be kind of at your side on this this journey. And I, I'm just so grateful that we were able to, to do this together. So to start the discussion, we always talk about the author and this was, she's such an interesting person and made Mm -hmm. such a huge contribution to this area of history. And it just really struck me actually, even reading so many times over and over while, while I was reading the book that when we learn about 
the you know the history the interaction between the Europeans who arrived in the Americas and the indigenous people who were living here before I have only ever heard any of those stories through the point of view of the Europeans and always through the point of view of the men and it, it, I mean I guess even if I hear about the Native American peoples it also still is men <laughs> mm-hmm. and so like right. to hear a Native American woman telling the story, it just like kind of blew my mind over and over. So Paula Gunn Allen, I'll, t- I'll talk a little bit about her and then we'll dive into the book. Mm-hmm. And, and we took this biography mostly from her website, which is paulagunnallen.net. She's passed away, but there was like a tribute to her on the occasion of her death, which was posted on her website. And that's where we got this biographical information from. So Paula Gunn Allen was born Paula Marie Francis to Elias Lee Francis, who is a former lieutenant governor of New Mexico, and Ethel Francis. She was born in 1939. She grew up on the Cubero, or it's probably pronounced Cubero, land grant in New Mexico, which is a Spanish-Mexican land grant village bordering the Laguna Pueblo Reservation. Paula Gunn Allen was of mixed Laguna, Sioux, Scottish, and Lebanese American descent. And she always identified most closely with the Laguna, among whom she spent her childhood. Both her father's Lebanese and her mother's Laguna Pueblo heritages shaped her critical and creative vision. Allen was a powerful voice in Native American literature and the study of American literature. She was also a founding mother of the contemporary women's spirituality movement. Her most recent work, Pocahontas, Medicine Woman, Spy, Entrepreneur, Diplomat, received a Pulitzer Prize nomination. The Sacred Hoop, Recovering the Feminine in American Indian Traditions, which is a collection of critical essays, and obviously the book that we're discussing today, is a cornerstone in the study of American Indian culture and gender. And her edited anthology, Studies in American Indian Literature, Critical Essays, and Course Designs, laid the foundation for the study of Native American literature. And she promoted and popularized the works of other Native American writers through several anthologies, which we have listed on our website for our listeners who are interested in digging deeper into Paula Gunn Allen's work. So she was a prolific writer. She published six volumes of poetry, and she published a novel, and her creative and critical work has been widely anthologized. So it appears in lots and lots of other compilations of work. Allen received her BA degree in English in 1966 and her MFA in creative writing in 1968, both from the University of Oregon. She earned her PhD in American Studies in 1976 from the University of New Mexico, and then she taught at Fort Lewis College in Colorado and the College of San Mateo, the San Diego State University, San Francisco State University, and the University of New Mexico Albuquerque, prior to joining the faculty at the University of California, Berkeley, where she became a professor of Native American and Ethnic Studies. In 1999, she retired from the University of California, Los Angeles, as a professor of English, Creative Writing, and American Indian Studies. Um, She also received many awards, including postdoctoral fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Ford Foundation with its National Research Council and many, many other 
awards that are listed on the website. She passed away at her home in Fort Bragg, California on May 29th, 2008, after a prolonged illness at the age of 68. The website says that family and friends surrounded her at the time of her passing, and she's survived by a daughter, two granddaughters, two sisters, and one brother, and two sons preceded her in death. So that's a bit about Paula Gunn Allen. Yeah, I I also think the summary from Wikipedia is helpful as we start. Based on her own experiences and her study of Native American cultures, Paula Gunn Allen wrote The Sacred Hoop, Recovering the Feminine in American Indian Traditions. This groundbreaking work argued that the dominant cultural view of Native American societies was biased and that European explorers and colonizers understood the Native peoples through the patriarchal lens. Gunn described the central role women played in many Native American cultures, including roles in political leadership, which were either downplayed or missed entirely by explorers and scholars from the male-dominated European cultures. Allen argued that most Native Americans at the time of European contact were matrifocal and egalitarian, with only a small percentage reflecting the European patriarchal pattern. The American Indian movement has itself been criticized by feminists as being sexist. In spite of all this, Allen's book and subsequent work has proved highly influential, encouraging other feminist studies of Native American cultures and literature, including an emergence of indigenous feminism. It remains a classic text of Native American studies and women's studies programs. So there. I'm glad you read that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really important and and great. And actually, that's a really great segue into the first part that we wanted to share because you just set up kind of her I would say one of the main themes in the book. I don't know if you agree, but something that just kind of underlies everything is her argument that Native Americans were really very misunderstood because it was a patriarchal white culture that was interpreting them, that was writing down what they perceived about the Native people. And she's saying, it's wrong. They missed, they completely misunderstood us. Um, and that was one of her main arguments, right? Oh, that message was all throughout the chapters I read. Yeah. 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 So that's, it's like really requires, even as a reader, I just thought, yeah, wow. Like I said, I mean, I've only heard one side of any of these stories and I, I need to make sure that I'm not approaching this text with my preconceived notions and biases that I've accumulated throughout my lifetime of, of always hearing this one side. So um, I'm actually going to start reading some passages and talking about them. And I wanted to highlight the introduction, actually. She talks about three main themes. And the first one I thought was really beautiful. So I wanted to share this. She talks about the connection to nature that she felt as a kid growing up where she did adjacent to the Laguna Pueblo reservation in a mostly indigenous community. And then just how that's really, uh, that permeates indigenous cultures. So she says, quote, when I was small, my mother often told me that animals, insects, and plants are to be treated with the kind of respect one customarily accords to high status adults. Life is a circle and everything has a place in it, she would say. That's how I met the sacred hoop. Mm. 
So that's a reference to the title that, I mean, the, the interconnection of everything. Um, and then one more quote on that topic. She says, quote, I am especially fortunate because the wind and the sky, the trees and the rocks and the sticks and the stars are usually in a teaching mood. So when I need an answer to some dilemma, I can generally get one for which I must say thank you to them all, mm. end quote. I thought that was so profound and beautiful, and I really related to it as I get older and seek wisdom and solace and comfort in nature increasingly. And also, I have to say, in comparison, I was just recently rereading the letters of Sarah Grimke in 1838, and, and where she was, there was that part where she was writing a rebuttal to a minister who was telling his congregations not to listen to women. <laughs> Like, don't listen to women who have the audacity to speak in public on political topics. And he wrote a letter and it said, literally, it said it in all caps. Like the text is in all caps. It says, if you have a question, you must go to your pastor. I mean, the word pastor is in all caps. You must go to your pastor, not to a woman. <laughs> and it just like, because I had just recently recently reread that, I was just like, wow, such a different approach. That's mm -hmm. such a different worldview, right? Like, stark so, comparison. I mean, so stark. I mean, literally, like the most patriarchal response you could have, like, don't listen to a woman, go ask your ecclesiastical male <laughs> leader. And Paula Gunn Allen is saying her teachers are the wind and the sky and the trees and the rocks and the sticks and the stars. And I just thought that was beautiful. Which, of course, as we've gotten older, like I personally, and you've discussed it too, connect in nature to whatever divine source there is. I connect to myself. Mm -hmm. I connect to the vine. I feel more at peace and more one with the people and places around me in nature. And so then having like that comparison is just so stark. Yeah, it is. And I agree. And I guess that's why it is a threat to have people go into nature because then they do trust their own inner wisdom, <laughs> which might not come to the same conclusions as a, as your pastor would. <laughs> so the second point that I wanted to bring out from the introduction is she talks about women's involvement in many traditional native American cultures. So like their involvement in the family structures and in the community structures. And um, before I read this quote, I'll just remind listeners of some of the word definitions that we talked about at the very, very beginning of, of the podcast in the, the episode on the chalice and the blade, where we talked about matrilocality. So matra, M-A-T, is like madre in Spanish or mater in Latin. And so that always refers to a mother. So something that's matrilocal would be if a man and a woman get married, then the the groom would come to live with the woman's family. And that's really powerful. I mean, it, it advantages whoever has that locality, right? Because whoever is going to live with the other spouse's family has to leave behind their own family, their childhood mm -hmm. friends, everybody who knew them before. And so for a woman to welcome the new groom, she gets to stay with her, you know, she gets to stay in her house and she gets to stay with the people who raised her and, and, and she's not an outsider. And, and you just hear these like really, really hard stories about, 
young women having to go like move into their new husband's home and their in-laws being super hard on them. And they're just, they're like, you know, an outsider in the community in their adult mm -hmm. life. So anyway, that really advantages women to have it be matrilocal in some important ways. And then matrifocal obviously just means focused on the mother. Um, and then matrilinear would mean tracing the lineage through the mother. And that can happen through understanding genetic lines of descent, or sometimes it can even mean in names. So you pass your, you inherit your mother's name rather than your father's. Anyway. Okay. With all of those definitions, Paula Gunn Allen says, there were and are gynocracies. And now I have to do another definition, but gyno would refer to woman, of course. There were and are gynocracies. That is woman-centered tribal societies in which matrilocality, matrifocality, matrilinearity, maternal control of household goods and resources, and female deities of the magnitude of the Christian God were and are present and active features of traditional tribal life. She goes on to say, traditional tribal lifestyles are more often gynocratic than not, and they are never patriarchal. These features make understanding tribal cultures essential to all responsible activists who seek life-affirming social change that can result in a real decrease in human and planetary destruction and in a real increase in quality of life for all inhabitants of planet Earth. The third part of the introduction that I wanted to um, share is just the, the impact overall of the European colonizers on Native American cultures. And we'll talk more about this in subsequent chapters, but I just wanted to bring out this quote. She says, quote, the colonizers saw, and rightly, that as long as women held unquestioned power, attempts at total conquest of the continents were bound to fail. In the centuries since the first attempts at colonization in the early 1500s, the invaders have exerted every effort to remove Indian women from every position of authority, to obliterate all records pertaining to gynocratic social systems, and to ensure that no American and few American Indians would remember that gynocracy was the primary social order of Indian America prior to 1800. Mm. Western studies of American Indian tribal systems are erroneous at base because they view tribalism from the cultural bias of patriarchy and thus either discount, degrade, or conceal gynocratic features or recontextualize those features so that they will appear patriarchal, end quote. Well, that says it all. I mean, ag again, that's like one of her, that's a main thesis of this book, that it's right. it, the story has been told wrong. Yeah. So, okay, Sherry, do you want to take, take it away with your chapter? So I took on the chapter, Grandmother of the Sun, Ritual Gynocracy in Native America. So I really didn't know all of this. And so it, it's kind of been beautiful to learn. Um, uh, just some basic quotes. Um, At the center of all is woman, and no thing is sacred without her blessing or her thinking. In this chapter, they talk about thought woman, mm. as, as in a woman has to think for anything to even be created. So all things have been thought of her from the very beginning. And I that is so beautiful to me. 
Um, another quote from this chapter is, quote, to address a person as mother is to pay the highest ritual respect, end quote. I thought it was interesting. In patriarchal society, mother has a pedestal, that that title, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there's no real ritual respect. I don't, I don't feel like there's mm. ritual respect. So in previous podcast episodes and in the one we did together, we talked about the fertility goddess. Here's a quote from the book on that concept. It says, quote, to assign this great being the position of fertility goddess is exceedingly demeaning. It trivializes the tribes and it trivializes the power of woman. Woman bears, that is true. She also destroys, that is true. She also wars and hexes and mends and breaks. She creates the power of the seeds and she plants them, end quote. So, the concept of a fertility goddess is just, it's too small, too narrow. Mm. And essentially that's what this podcast on patriarchy is uncovering. It's like, there is so much more. Another part mm-hmm. um, in this chapter that I found completely beautiful and kind of reframes the American view of the native people is she specifically says the rains come only to peaceful people. And the perspective that I was raised with um, was that the native people were warring people, but Mm. tribes come from this perspective of the rains come only to peaceful people. Then their complete motivator is peace. It's not about conquering, taking over, warring with, the next group of people. It's about finding connections and building bonds with the next group of people so that if our community is living in peace and then we meet your community, we can come together in peace so that we can both have rain. Hmm. Hmm. Um, one of the things that I connected with in this chapter was, uh, well, I just learned about a cacique. And I don't, Amy, have you ever heard that word before, cacique? Mm-mm. No, hey. never. So um, this is a store that I buy my lingerie from. <laughs> and oh. I've always thought that it was like a beautiful name. Well, I learned, um, so here's a quote from this chapter. Among the Pueblo of the American Southwest are two notable traditional offices. That of the cacique, who was charged with maintaining internal harmony and that of the Hachin or war captain, whose office was concerned with mediating between the tribe and outsiders. Here she's talking about these two um, people with authority in their culture working together. Um, Both of them having equal power, both of them having their roles So the cacique was like the inside. Like if we talk about it in terms of Mm. God or goddesses, the cacique was the inside. She was responsible for everything on the inside. And the Hotchin was everything on the outside. I just think it's interesting. Another quote she says about this is, quote, this dyadic structure emphasizes complementarity. And... Mm -hmm. 
I think that it does. I think that these two mm-hmm. roles are complementary. The thing, so traditionally the cacique was a woman and traditionally the Hutchin was a man. However, in this chapter, we learn that it actually wasn't too divided by genders. So there was like mm-hmm. an element of respect for whoever ended up being the person who could maintain internal harmony was the cacique. And mm-hmm. the person who had the skills to mediate between one tribe to another with the outsiders, they were the Hutchin. So I don't know that it was always male and female, like men do this, women do that. I, I don't know that it was that. It was these two roles existed with these titles and the person with the best skills held those two roles. Mm-hmm. Well, can I say too, some things that struck me as you were talking because I loved those passages that you highlighted. And I love, like you did, I love that part at the very beginning where you said, no thing is sacred without her blessing, mm-hmm. her thinking, and to to highlight thinking woman, because that's so different from the classical tradition of that, you know, associates nature and like the lower earthly order of things with female but then light and reason and the ability to think critically and that is associated with the male. And I personally really don't resonate with that ordering of things because I do, I mean, just even anecdotally in my own life and even in my own self, I feel like, yes, I'm an emotional feeling person. I'm also a thinking person. Right. And I, I'm, extremely rational and I'm extremely emotional. And I don't know why I would have to be only emotional just because I'm female. And my husband too, very, very rational, very, very emotional. Same with all my kids, regardless of gender. And I so appreciate what those passages that you read about the sacredness comes from this woman's blessing and also her thinking and that she has the power to mend and break she creates and she destroys and it's like this full re- fully realized vision right of what a goddess can be what a woman can be i liked it yeah me too okay the next chapter that we wanted to talk about is entitled when women throw down bundles and this is a sad 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 chapter but i thought it was important to bring out Um, It talks about how Native American nations were subjugated. And again, it's just so powerful to me because it was the story told from the point of view of a Native American and a woman. And we just don't hear about the conflict from that perspective. Never, ever have I heard about, uh, you know, that perspective. So she says, quote, the Iroquois story is currently one of the best chronicles of the overthrow of the gynocracy. Material about the status of women in many nations are lacking. Any original documentation that exists is buried under the flood of readily available published material written from the colonizer's patriarchal perspective, almost all of which is based on the white man's belief in universal male dominance. Male dominance may have characterized a number of tribes, but it was by no means as universal as colonialist propaganda has led us to believe. End quote. So again, she's she's highlighting the diversity within the nations, right? There were patriarchal nations that were, nations that were more patriarchal, and 
some that were less so. I mean, there's such diversity with between them. So it's it's she does acknowledge that. Right. But again, she just says that the the people who were recording the histories just had such a biased lens according to what they really believed and what they were used to seeing. So they saw saw what they expected to see. She says, quote, under the old laws, the Iroquois were a mother-centered, mother-right people whose political organization was based on the central authority of the matrons, the mothers of the longhouses, which were like the clans. Mm -hmm. She says, at the end of the Revolutionary War, the Americans declared the Iroquois living on the American side of the United States-Canadian border defeated, pressed from all sides, their fields burned and salted their daily life disrupted, and the traditional power of the matrons under assault from the missionaries who flocked to Iroquois country to civilize them, the recently powerful Iroquois became a subject captive people. The longhouse declined in importance, and eventually Iroquois women were firmly under the thumb of of Christian patriarchy. So it's it's devastating, and I mean, it's hard even... It's hard for Christians to listen to that too. And it's important, I think, to listen to it and realize what it felt like to have people come in and, and quote unquote, civilize you and um, take away and destroy your way of life. And what, and you know, Alan's, one of her main points is specifically what that did to women. So um, she goes on after you know, chronicling what happened to the Iroquois. She talks about the Algonquin people, and both of those nations were on the East Coast. She talks about the Algonquin people who were described by the conquering Europeans as only having male chiefs. But she says that this is because that's what they expected to see. They assumed universal male leadership, and so they ignored tons of evidence that there were also female chiefs. And um, there's a word that's translated as something like empress. And in addition, every person's name that the Europeans didn't know or understand, they recorded as male. And then, and they also, if they didn't know, like the default was male. And then the default also, if they didn't know their status within the community, they recorded those names as commoners in society. So really it's like, how can we trust that record if they didn't, because of course they wouldn't have known, they wouldn't have known the nuance and the complexities of this completely foreign society also because they disdained it, right? Like they, they had no respect for it. So those are the records that we're trusting that would be describing these peoples. It really like, I never, I hadn't really given enough thought to this issue before, but Um, I'll just share a couple of quotes. She says, quote, this falsifies the record of a people who are not able to set it straight. It reinforces patriarchal socialization among all Americans who are thus led to believe that there have never been any alternative structures. Mm. End quote. That's interesting too, right? It really is. An outsider's perspective can't ever be accurate, right? It's just the outsider's perspective. Yeah. Yep. And how dangerous, like if you, you know, to, that, that, that narrative, I mean, she's saying it was on purpose, that it was done on purpose. I don't know how purposeful it was that these men were saying like, we're going to alter the story so that no, you know, European, so that our daughters and wives don't know that there's such thing as egalitarianism. 
I don't know that they did it on purpose, but that definitely was the effect it had, right? It's right. like they don't know that there's an alternative besides just very paternal patriarchy. So so she then, I'm going to read just a couple more things. She talks about the Cherokee as well. And she, this is another example of women's power in their native social structure. It says, quote, Cherokee women had the power to decide the fate of captives. The decisions had to be made by female clan heads because a captive who was to live would be adopted into one of the families whose affairs were directed by the clan mothers. The clan mothers also had the right to wage war. And Indian women were famous warriors and powerful voices in the councils. But, um, she says, quote, by the time the Removal Act was under consideration by Congress in the early 1800s, many of these British educated men and men with little Cherokee blood wielded considerable power over the nation's policies. So I've skipped a little bit. I think she, she's talking about men who were technically part of the, the Cherokee nation, but had been educated in basically like the European schools mm-hmm. and maybe even intermarried, right? Families that had intermarried between native and, and European people then these men were gaining more influence within the nations, right? So at this point, returning to the quote, she says, in the ensuing struggle, women endured rape and murder, but they had no voice in the future direction of the Cherokee nation. The Cherokee were by this time highly stratified, though they had been much less so before this period, and many were Christianized. The male leadership bought and sold not only black men and women, but also men and women of neighboring tribes. The women of the leadership retreated to Bible classes, sewing circles, and petticoats that rivaled those worn by their white sisters. Mm. And so she just describes, you know, there was war, but then there was also just kind of a cultural, like a gradual cultural loss and obliteration because she describes how these Cherokee women you know, would end up marrying white ministers. Right. And then, you know, within a couple of generations, their culture completely disappeared from those families, right? They just became so anglicized right. that it disappeared. And that leads me to the last part I want to talk about in this chapter, where she elaborates more on just this process of transforming the Native American societies into European societies. And again, I couldn't believe how similar this was both to the chalice and the blade with like the dominator societies coming in and just wiping out the partnership societies, but also Sherry, it was so similar. I don't know if this came to your mind too, but it was so similar to that process that we talked about in the creation of patriarchy, right? Cause we talked about the goddess worshiping cultures of the middle East mm-hmm. and how other groups came in and cut down the shrines. And you talked about Asherah and the trees and the words throughout the ancient yeah. Hebrew text are like burned, cut down, hewn yeah. down. Like it's so violent, honestly. Yeah. And it does mirror what she's describing here. Yeah, exactly. So she says, Quote, affecting the social transformation from egalitarian gynocentric systems to hierarchical patriarchal systems requires meeting four objectives. The first is accomplished when the primacy of female as creator is displaced 
and replaced by male gendered creators. The second objective is achieved when tribal governing institutions and their philosophies that are their foundation are destroyed, as they were among the Iroquois and the Cherokee. Then she goes on to say that democracy by coercion is hardly democracy in any language. And to some Indians recognizing that fact, the threat of, of extinction is preferable to the ignominy of enslavement in their own land. Mm. The third objective is accomplished when the people are pushed off their lands, deprived of their economic livelihood, and forced to curtail or end altogether pursuits on which their ritual system, philosophy, and subsistence depend. Now dependent on white institutions for survival, tribal systems can ill afford gynocracy when patriarchy, that is, survival, requires male dominance. The fourth objective requires that the clan structure be replaced. The women clan heads are replaced by elected male officials, and the psychic net that is formed and maintained by the nature of non-authoritarian gynocentricity, grounded in respect for diversity of gods and people, is thoroughly rent. Mm. So that's... um, the end of that section in that passage, just describing the process by which that culture, which Alan really convincingly portrays as a very egalitarian culture in which women are not just, you know, like you talked about the pedestal of motherhood, like, you know, European Victorians, like, oh, we value women so much. No, this is actually what valuing women looked like, right? When they really had a a powerful and important role and everyone had a powerful and important role in how that was completely just wiped out along with every part of their culture. It's just absolutely gut-wrenching. And systemic, right? So here's a four-point yeah. system on how to destroy that. And it was done mm. one point at a time. It is heartbreaking. Mm. Um, so the next chapter that I read was titled Where I Come From is like this. And it's a modern American Indian woman's experience. So I guess if I knew more about my heritage, this is where I would place myself. And in reading this, um, I did find a little bit of myself in it. So here's a quote from this chapter. She says, the tribes see women variously, but they do not question the power of femininity. Sometimes they see women as fearful, sometimes peaceful, sometimes omnipotent and omniscient but they never portray women as mindless, helpless, simple, or oppressed. So that is end quote. So that whole concept really was an invention of colonization. <laughs> the concept of women being simple, helpless or mindless. And I, so I do go back to old movie reels I have seen where the woman needs to be rescued by the man. And where the woman is helpless. And for sure, there are times when I need help, (laughs) but I don't think that it's because I'm a woman, right? Mm -hmm. I I think that Mm -hmm. it's because as a human, we all need help. Sometimes my husband will ask for help because he needs help, not because he's weak, but because some things require more than one mind or more than two hands. We So this whole concept of women being mindless and helpless, simple and oppressed, that is an invention 
of the colonizers that they brought to the Native American, the Native American Indian woman and, and said that that's how they were, but that's just not true. That's not how these women see themselves. Mm. Um, another thing she talked about and seeing her self as like a modern Native American woman or American Indian woman um, was where did, like, she's asking herself the question, where did my concept of self come from? And so here is a quote that I resonated with a lot. Quote, my mother told me stories all the time. And then in this, she describes a lot of the stories. And then I can, I'll continue the quote by saying, in all of those stories, she told me who I was, who I was supposed to be, whom I came from, and who would follow me. In this way, she taught me the meaning of the words she said, that all life is a circle and everything has a place within it. End quote. Um, I think one of the most disruptive things any colonizer could do is come in and either destroy or rewrite those stories. It sounds like that was a powerful tradition. Um, and the oral tradition among these women, that was how these stories were carried down and they were absolutely disrupted. So I see that in my family line, the Pueblo people were disrupted by the Spanish people. And so I lost that Pueblo heritage because only the Spanish heritage is what continued on in my family line. So mm. here I am missing these stories, wanting to know these stories and wishing that I had these stories from my mother, my grandmother, my great grandmother. And, and there's, so I find in myself a yearning for stories. So as like a teenager, of course, remember when we knew everything, right? When we were teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I rem remember mocking um, both my mom and grandma and grandmother for watching soap operas. <laughs> <laughs> like just, oh, why would you spend your time like this? Why would you do this with your day? Whatever. Like just really feeling like the way they spent their time was less than. And... Mm -hmm. Now in my adult life as a woman, I um, spent several years being a psychotherapist. And I realized at one point, wait a second, I have turned. <laughs> so there's this, I feel like there's this huge vacancy, this vacuum where I needed the stories. But not only did I need the stories, but my mother, my grandmother and great grandmother needed the stories. And so they found them in another way. So here am mm, I as an older woman legitimizing the need for these same stories. <laughs> Except for it's my mm. career. <laughs> I'm mm, hearing. Oh, the, I see. Right. The stories of people mm. and helping them with their stories and finding value in their stories and listening. But I, I just think when the native women were conquered, those stories were taken from them and mm. an entire identity was lost. Mm -hmm. And so when she talks about the oral tradition of these stories being passed down from mother to daughter and that being an essential part of the heritage, mm -hmm. I, I just feel so strongly that that's why my spirit is reaching out for these stories, wanting to yeah. help people sort out their own, 
but then also just wanting to pass that down as a tradition. And so I look back at my mom and grandma and great grandmother, and I don't see the shameful behavior anymore. I see like a longing. Oh, wow. That's amazing, Sherry. And I, as you're talking, I picked that, that quote you read that where it says all life is a circle and everything has a place within it. And that right. these, these daughters were taught who they came from and who would follow them in that circle. And that's the sacred hoop, right? And it is. And just like, I just felt this grief, like a new sense of grief when you were talking about maybe your own ancestors or like, you know, we're talking about all of these different nations of having that hoop broken because for the first time ever, they they couldn't picture their descendants because either, you know, their people were being killed, they were being displaced from their land, they were marrying you know, European colonizers who were not allowing them to practice their tradition or speak their language. They started right. dressing differently. And I just picture these grandmothers thinking like, I can't picture who's going to come after me anymore. And then the hoop being broken so that you, like like you just said, like you don't, you didn't get to have the stories told to you of at least on that, that line of your family heritage right. of where you came from. But it's neat. You're mending the hoop. A little bit, you know what I mean? And like you're saying, reaching out for those ancestors, you're maybe it can be mended in some ways. And I do think about the things that have been passed down to me. um, And I see them both with strength and beauty. Like one thing that it was, was never explicit, but is definitely visible when we look at my mother's line is how powerful the women are. The women mm. end up being the strength in their relationships. Um, and that is, that ends up being like a financial thing too. And this is like three generations strong. So that's just really interesting. Okay, I want to jump that to is. the next part. Um, mm-hmm. Where they, she talks about um, how in these native cultures, menstruation was talked about and it was a normal occurrence that was celebrated. She What would that this, be like? I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'll, I'll tell you the story about how I did celebrate mine, right? Should I share that okay. right now? <laughs> yes, please. Okay. So I, in December of 2019... Um, had a hysterectomy and among other procedures. And um, I had seen some other friends celebrate their uterus, like in fun ways. And I decided to do that. And so mm-hmm. I invited the the women that I know and love of all ages to celebrate with me. So um, my daughter was 12 years old at the time and her dear friend, who's also 12, was starting a cake-making business. And so she made me a uterus cake. So I, and, <laughs> and we had uterus decorations up. We invited girls and women together. And we talked about menstruation. We talked about, you know, our, mm. our first time, how, how was that? And then we ended up talking about um, birthing and some of our sexual experiences. And this, this, the entire night was just open and wonderful. And we were sharing Mm. stories that maybe we had never even told anyone before. 
So I had this lovely party, then I have my hysterectomy. And part of the hysterectomy is like hearing other women say how difficult things were. And yes, um, healing is healing. And when you cut your body open, there's a healing process. But I found that my process was, I think, easier than most. And I think Mm. that um, taking the time to celebrate and honor what my uterus and fallopian tubes have done for me (laughs) Mm. um, was the right way to do it. So anyway, so that was just like a quirky, fun thing that I ended up doing. Um, And hopefully I taught my friends and my daughters that like, we can talk about this stuff. We are all women. We're Mm -hmm. experiencing the same thing, except for we learned during these conversations that everybody's is a little bit different and talking about those differences Mm. was really healing and helpful. So anyway, back to this chapter, she specifically says, quote, menstrual taboos were about power, not about sin or filth. Mm. So I really feel like the American culture that I was raised in, like, this is something you have to hide, you not talk about it. Mm-hmm. And if you do talk about it in hushed tones and we secretly slide, you know, a feminine product to the person in need but it has to be secret. Mm-hmm. It has to be covered up. Um, oh, so- absolutely. And I, I remember growing up in our faith tradition, going to the temple, which is different from a church. It's like the most holy place and you have to get interviewed and have a recommend to go there. And um, when you're 12, you can start going to the temple if you, you know, meet the worthiness requirements. But we were told that you, we could not, well, there's, there's a ritual there that's, um, that involves baptism and girls weren't allowed to, to do those baptism rituals if they were menstruating, which right. I think just comes from the Hebrew tradition of being ritually unclean, right. but that made a big impact on me for sure. Oh, that's, absolutely. I, and that's what came to my mind when you, when you said not about sin or filth, it made me feel unclean. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And not worthy. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so in the American Indian tradition, the menstrual taboos were not about that. They were about power. Hmm. So they needed women. This is what she describes in the book. They needed women at the different stages of ovulation <laughs> for their rituals. And then they also needed women of the different ages. And so every age and stage of development was crucial for the rituals. So, and and not to hurt them, but that their presence empowered the ritual. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. So they needed a girl, like prepubescent girl for certain rituals. They needed a, a young menstruating virginal girl for certain rituals. They needed a, a fertile woman who um, like was sexually active and can bear children for certain rituals. Um, and then they needed postmenopausal women for certain rituals. So women in all of their different stages were not seen as less than, but were seen as valued for their stage and integral in their rituals. How would that be? Amazing. So powerful. So, so powerful. In, so incredibly powerful. I had no idea yeah. that like women and their lifespan could be honored in such a beautiful way. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, American cultural tradition essentially says that youth and beauty. <laughs> so maybe girls and women from 18 to 38 are the only valued women, but in the mm-hmm. um, American Indian tradition, women at all ages and all stages are valued. Yeah. Wow. We have a lot to learn. We do. Um, Actually, I noticed that you mentioned Moana at the very beginning of this episode, and I noticed that Mm -hmm. in that um, film is that they honored and they didn't hide or shame, like, really, that grandmother figure. Oh, she's The wrinkly grandma. I loved her. And I loved her for her wrinkles. (laughs) Yeah. And and her human looking body, right? Yep. That yep. is so seldom seen. Oh, I loved it too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the quote about this is let's see, quote, each ritual depends on certain balance of power. And the positions of women within the phases of womanhood are used by tribal people to empower certain rights. She also talked about mm-hmm. um like women who were ovulating could disempower men. And I had, I'd never thought of it that way, but the the balance had to be just right. And, and, and so that's why women in their different stage and in their different phases were integral to balance out the power. So if there was a man who was too powerful, they would bring in a woman to balance out that power. Hmm. In this chapter, she also talked about, the bicultural bind. So we're speaking positively about um, American Indian women, like this entire episode, right? She is not sugarcoating it. She says that um, these American Indian women have met what she calls a bicultural bind and that that bicultural bind leads to acting out, quote, we act in these destructive ways because we suffer from the societal conflicts caused by having to identify with two hopelessly opposed cultural definitions of women. So here we have the the tradition and the tribal heritage of women as like powerful and empowered. And then the colonizers have come in and described women as helpless and in modern America, those two things are so integral to who we are, both of those opposing views, that it leads to acting out. And so when when we see the stereotypes of American Indian women today, we hear stories of violence, we hear stories of substance use, we hear stories of loneliness, lack of education. We hear that the all and all of those stories are true, but they're true because these women feel divided. Mm. And they're also true because of this history of trauma. And whenever we have a history of trauma, we are going to act out as a survival technique. Mm. So she calls this the bicultural bind. And if we can give mm-hmm. language to it and say, these behaviors are a product of when you take a group of women and disempower them like this, then we can understand it better and we can start to heal. Mm -hmm. 
those are my takeaways from this particular chapter. Mm. Thanks, Sherry. Um, the next chapter that we want to highlight is called How the West Was Really Won. And I wanted to just talk about two main points. Um, and I'll start with a quote. Quote, Along with the devaluation of women comes the devaluation of traditional spiritual leaders, female and male, and largely because of their ritual power and status, the devaluation of lesbian and gay tribal members as leaders, shamans, healers, or ritual participants. Colonization means the loss not only of language and the power of self-government, but also of ritual status of all women and those males labeled deviant by the white Christian colonizers. The usual divisions of labor, generally gender-based, if you count homosexual men as women and lesbians as men, which they did, those divisions of labor were altered, prohibited, or forced underground from whence they have only recently begun to reemerge as the tribes find themselves engaged in a return to more traditional ways of life. So um, I'll continue the quote, but this is what you were referring to earlier, Sherry, when, where you were talking about like whoever was more suited to the job would do that job, right? right. This is kind of in that, that same ethos, really, kind of that same worldview. So she says, quote, in considering gender-based roles, we must remember that while the roles themselves were fixed in most archaic American cultures, with divisions of women's work and men's work, the individuals fit into these roles on the basis of proclivity, inclination, and temperament. Thus, men who in contemporary European and American societies are designated gay or homosexual were gender-designated among many tribes as women in terms of their roles. Women who in contemporary societies are designated as lesbians were designated as men in tribal cultures. And so she talks in this chapter about people kind of having like a vibe, right? Like you had a soul kind of that emanated from you. And if you had a female vibe, then you were designated as a woman. And if you had a male vibe, then you were designated as a man and you could live that way your whole life. And so there, there's, there's an option for you. You know what I mean? It, yeah. um, and just that again, like that, what, like we talked about before that there's this alternative way of doing society that just kind of opens up like, wow, <laughs> why didn't other societies think of this? Right. Like right. it's just, it was just so much more open and so, yeah, people were just able to do the things that felt most natural to them without being stigmatized for it. So she goes on to say that the Yuma tribe had, quote, a, a tradition of gender designation based on dreams. A female who dreamed of weapons became a male for all practical purposes. The Cocopa gender role designation was based on the choice of companions and play objects of a young person. In such systems, a girl who chose to play with boys or with boys' objects, such as a bow and arrow, became a male functionary. The Navajo considered lesbians an asset, and the Mojave thought that from the inception of the world, homosexuals were a natural and necessary part of society. And then she goes on to say later in the chapter, Recently, Russell Means of the American Indian Movement 
a man not always noted for his liberal attitudes toward women and other devalued individuals, said in defense of homosexuals and their anciently valued place among the people, quote, the Indian looked upon these unique individuals as something special, the great mystery created to teach us. These people had something special to tell us. And the Oglala Sioux holy man, John Fire Lame Deer, said, To us a man is what nature or his dreams make him. We accept him for what he wants to be. That's up to him. There are good men among the Winktes, and they have been given certain powers. End quote. It's really so beautiful. I just beautiful. thought that was so beautiful. The, the word that comes to me in, in just reading this is that it honors the individual for who they are without assigning mm-hmm. a role that it, the individual gets to heed their natural inclination and that whatever that is, there is a place for them in that society. Yes, there is a place for everyone. So beautiful. I'm sure there wasn't a place for someone who's going to abuse members of society, right? You know what I mean? Like I can just hear in my head people saying like, well, now you're so, you know, if it's too open, then you're just going to accept everything. And then what? Is there no bad behavior? And I've heard people talk like this. So what she writes about in the book says that the rains come only to peaceful people. So that does not say that there's, that's not say let's honor all the violence that we can tolerate. No, it's the rains come only to peaceful people. Right. Exactly. So all people who want to go ahead. Well, the only point or purpose of war is to defend yourself and something Mm -hmm. that you value highly. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. So the second part that I want to highlight in this chapter is Alan's attribution of violence against women to European misogyny. And I thought this was a really important point. She says, quote, as we articulate a feminine analysis of the effects of colonization, we are more and more able to demonstrate that the colonizer's image of Indian women has, more than any other factor, led to the high incidence of rape and abuse of Indian women by Indian men. This violent behavior is tacitly approved of by the tribes through the refusal of tribal governments across the country and in urban Indian enclaves to address the issue and provide care, shelter, and relief for the women victims and competent, useful treatment for the offenders. The white and recently Indian image of powerful Indian women as traitors is another chapter in the patriarchal folktale that begins with Eve causing Adam's fall from grace into divine disgrace. Um, and I thought that this was a really important point. We will talk more about the issue of violence against Native American women on our episode on the United Nations Declaration of the Elimination of Violence Against Women because there's been a, a current, actually, epidemic of terrible, egregious violence against Native women on on Native lands just in the last decade or so. So that's after, you know, Paula Gunn Allen was writing this book. So mm-hmm. I would encourage listeners to look into that. There's a big chapter on it in the book White Feminism by Koa Beck. 
if you're interested in digging in deeper and we'll have some more on our website about that. But that's what I had for this chapter, Sherry. Okay. Um, this is the last chapter that I'm going to be discussing is titled angry women are building issues and struggles facing American Indian women today. So in this brief chapter, she just talks about how really American Indian women are, are just fighting for their own survival. And it is the survival of the self, but also the survival of any grasp of heritage um, or, or culture. She says specifically, quote, the U.S. government continues its policy of termination, relocation, removal, and assimilation along with the destruction of wilderness, reservation land and its resources, and severe curtailment of hunting, fishing, timber harvesting, and water use rights. End quote. So these are the things that America, so this was published in 1986, and here in 2021, these issues are still very, very present every single day mm -hmm. that the U.S. government continues to um, control and essentially with the desire to obliterate these cultures. And, and so in, in that, since the U.S. government has been doing this, the result is that, quote, their population goes hungry, homeless, impoverished, and cut out. So then Americans see the native population as less than, but it's because America has taken everything from them. And so when they don't have access to all of the things that we have access to, how can they thrive? She goes on to say that it's not just America. She says every single government, left, right, or centrist in the Western Hemisphere is consciously or subconsciously dedicated to the extinction of those tribal people who live within its borders. Mm. Something that's brand new to my knowledge is the discovery of children's graves. Children were taken from their indigenous families, their indigenous tribes, and told that we want to assimilate them into our, you know, more modern society. And so we will take them to school and we will take them to churches. And I do not know how they were treated. I'm not an expert in this subject, but the end result was mass graves of children. I was taught to celebrate my country that I'm so proud of. And then I learned this history that the American government did systemically <laughs> take children from their families to re-educate them or assimilate them into a higher culture, a better culture. And we don't know how many mass graves there are. That's the thing. There are these children who were just taken from their families and I can only assume murdered. I don't know what they did or how they did it. That they're uncovering these graves um, at school sites. And so here we are. <laughs> Angry women building and for a dang good reason, we have reason to be angry, right? These indigenous women, their anger comes from like a sacred source of needing to fight for what is right and what they believe. Um, 
Here's another quote from this chapter. She says, we survive war and conquest. We survive colonization, acculturation, assimilation. We survive beating, rape, starvation, sterilization, abandonment, neglect, death of our children, our loved ones, destruction of our land, our homes, our past and our future. We survive and we do more than just survive. We bond, we care, we fight, we teach, we nurse, we bear, we feed, we earn, we laugh, we love, we hang in there no matter what. The resilience in this quote just brings me to tears because I can feel this strength inside me. Not that I've ever endured what these women have endured, but I feel that some source of that has to be in me. And that no matter what hardships come to me, which are nothing compared to what the indigenous people have endured, I can wake up the next day and use my strengths to make a better society. Um, that list at the end, we bond, we care, we fight, we teach, we nurse, we bear. It's so beautiful. And as women, we do all of that. And we do it because like that deep, deep need to survive exists. She goes on to talk about why indigenous women behave the way they do and why indigenous men behave the way they do has a lot to do with American popular media. The quote here is, the American popular media image of Indian people as savages with no conscience, no compassion, and no sense of the value of human life and human dignity was hardly true of the tribes. However, it was true of the invaders. But as Adolf Hitler noted a little over 50 years ago, if you tell a lie big enough and often enough, it will be believed, end quote. So here the colonizers come in and create this image, and we have the invention of, like, American media. And so they paint the picture of Native men and Native women being less than, being savages. And, of course, in my education, I learned about labeling theory. When a label is placed on an individual, it takes a ton of energy and effort to reject a label. And the easier thing to mm. do is to accept it. So then mm. these indigenous men have accepted and then internalized these messages as their own. And they have not in all cases, but in many become that. So I feel like American society has labeled these indigenous men and women in a negative way and then punished them for acting out in that same negative way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And everything that we're learning in this book suggests that the tradition and the heritage was beautiful and peaceful and accepting and honoring it was designed for connection 
connected connection of individuals, but also connections of, of tribes. And um, what a disservice to for the colonizers to come in and create this image. And for the people to, of course, modern technology is so powerful. And if they see that that image is being portrayed of them, it's just so easy to fall into that label and say, I guess that's what I am now. Mm-hmm. And two, as she points out that, I mean, there, there were wars right. between, you know, native peoples between their own nations, but also between their peoples and the European colonizers, but to, to label them as violent and misogynistic, just the, the hypocrisy of that, when, when you consider what was done to them and that in, I, I was going to say in so many cases, it was self-defense. I, it could be argued that in all cases, it was self-defense. These are invaders coming onto their land, taking, taking all of their resources. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. in, in every case, there was a foreign aggressive dominator, you know, presence coming in and disrupting, violently disrupting. And so, and then for them to be blamed for any violence that ensued, just doesn't, it doesn't actually even seem rational to me, let alone just, right? I mean, it's right. just not even rational. And and yet that's what everybody kind of bought into, like a completely right. one-sided view a complete a lie like you said it's like on the level of nazi lying right. about you know the inferiority of a certain race and they have this and that trait when so I was just thinking, they were the ones that were being attacked yes go ahead that if somebody's first impression of me was like if i were peacefully sleeping in bed they woke me in the middle of the night and like had yes. a weapon and then and then they judged me based on my reaction and then because I'm yes. going to have a reaction, right? <laughs> I'm, yes. I'm going to do whatever it is. Um, I don't have a weapon in my home, but I do have bear spray. And if I come and spray the <laughs> heck out of you with the bear spray, and then if that's your first impression of me, and so then you go into American media and say, by the way, that Sherry Crawford, she is violent. She will spray you with bear spray at yeah. any moment. No, that's like, it's just not a fair right. characterization of no. who they are, right? It's yeah. They were it's ridiculous. Attacked. It really is. They defended mm-hmm. themselves, and then the colonizers said these people are vicious. In not just they didn't say in the defense of themselves and their people. They said they are vicious. Right. Period. Yeah, yeah. Um. <clears throat> so am- angry women are building. She goes on to say that women are. They have to fight. For survival at every level, including at the level of government. So they're fighting internally, they're fighting in their families, they're fighting in their tribes, they're fighting at the local government level, and then also at the federal government level. They're just being met with resistance. Quote, we are doing all we can as mothers and grandmothers, as family members and tribal members, as professionals, workers, artists, shamans, leaders, chiefs, speakers, writers, and organizers, we daily demonstrate that we have no intention of disappearing, of being silent, or of quietly acquiescing in our extinction. 
end quote. Mm. So here they are, like, feeling the struggle and feeling the fight at every level and also feeling powerful enough to continue to fight for their existence in our in our current land. Oh, Sherry, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, that brings us to the end of the episode, actually. And um, I do, I do want to um, alert listeners again to the to our social media because we'll have a lot of supplemental materials for this episode, including um, news articles that reference the tragic discovery of those mass graves that you talked about, Sherry, it's, it's in, mm. you know, in every news outlet is covering it right now. And it's, it's just, um, it's just appalling and so heartbreaking, but we'll have a lot of um, information on social media. So thanks for bringing that to our attention and to this conversation. Um, I'm wondering if, as we wrap up, if you have any, special takeaway or a last quote from the book or anything that you'd like to, um, to end with? Um, yes, this is a passage in the chapter, The Ways of Our Grandmothers. Quote, in the beginning was thought, and her name was woman, the mother, the grandmother, recognized from earliest times into the present among those peoples of the Americas who kept to the eldest traditions. To her, we owe our lives and from her comes our ability to endure, regardless of the concerted assaults on our, on her, being, for the past 500 years of colonization. She is the old woman who tends the fires of life. She is the old woman spider who weaves us together in a fabric of interconnection. She is the eldest god, the one who remembers and re-remembers. And though the history of the past 500 years has taught us bitterness and helpless rage, we endure into the present, alive, certain of our significance, certain of her centrality, her identity, as the sacred hoop of being. End quote. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you, Amy, for having me. Next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be reading the incredibly important document which we referenced earlier in this episode, the Declaration of the Elimination of Violence Against Women, issued by the United Nations in 1993. Since its founding, the United Nations had concerned itself with the advancement of women's rights, but it had never specifically targeted violence against women until this declaration. This discussion will be raw and will require courage to listen to, but because violence affects so many women worldwide and always has, it's a critical listen. You can find the speech online on the UN website, so read it sometime this week and then join us for the discussion of the Declaration of the Elimination of Violence Against Women next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Mm -hmm.